Chapter Four of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Chapter Four. Mention has been made of a whist party at Doctor Bodkin's, to which Mrs. Errington announced her intention of going. It took place on the Thursday after that evening on which Mrs. Errington was first introduced to the reader, that is to say, on the second night following. Whist parties were almost the only social entertainment ever given amongst the genteel persons in Whitford. The Reverend Cyrus Bodkin, D.D., liked his rubber, so did Robert Smith, Esquire, M.R.C.S., and Mr. Dockett, the attorney, and Miss Chubb, and one or two more cronies, who were frequently seen at the doctor's green card-tables. The Bodkins lived in a gloomy stone house adjoining the grammar school, of which, indeed, it formed part. The house was approached by a gravelled courtyard surrounded by high stone walls. The garden at the back ran sloping down to a broad green meadow, which in turn was bounded by the little river Wit, all overhung with willows, and covered by a floating mass of broad water-lily leaves, just opposite the doctor's garden gate. In the full summer-time the view from the back of the house was pretty and pastoral enough, but in autumn and winter the meadow was a swamp, whose vivid green looked poisonous, as indeed it was, exhaling ague and rheumatism from its plashy surface, and a white brooding mist trailed itself morning and evening along the sluggish wit, like a fallen cloud, condemned by some angry prince of the air to crawl serpent-like on earth instead of soaring and sailing in the Empyrean. Such fancies never came into Dr. Bodkin's head, however, nor into his wife's either, good, anxious, unselfish, sad little woman. Into his daughter Minnie's brain all sorts of wild, fantastic notions would intrude, as she lay on her sofa, looking out upon the garden, and the river, and the meadow, and the gnarled old willows, and the flying scud in the sky, but she very seldom spoke of her fancies to any one. She spoke of other matters, though, freely enough. She had many visitors, who came and sat around her couch, or beside the lounging chair, on which, on her good days, she reclined. She was better acquainted with the news of Whitford than most of the people who could use their limbs to go abroad and see what was passing. She was interested in the progress of the boys at the grammar school, and knew the names, and a good deal about the characters of every one of them. She would chat and laugh and joke by the hour with the frequenters of her father's house. But of herself, of her own thoughts, feelings, and fancies, Minnie Bodkin said no word to them. Nor did she, in truth, ever speak much on the subject all her life. And there were days, black days, in the calendar of her poor anxious little mother, when Minnie would remain shut into her room, refusing to see or speak with any one, and suffering much pain of body, with a proud stoicism, which rejected sympathy like a wall of granite. There is no suggestion of granite about her now, however, as she lies propped up by crimson cushions on a sofa in her father's drawing-room. The room is bright and warm, despite the white kraken of mist that is coiled around the outer walls of the house. Wax lights shine in tall old-fashioned silver candlesticks on the mantelpiece, and on the centre table, and on a pianoforte, beside which stands a canterbury full of music-books. A great fire blazes in the grate, and makes its immediate neighbourhood too hot for the comfort of most people. But Minnie is apt to be chilly, and loves the heat. Some delicate ferns and hothouse plants adorn a stand between the windows. They are rather a rare luxury in Whitford, but Minnie loves flowers, and always has some choice ones about her. A still rarer luxury hangs on the wall opposite to her sofa, in the shape of a very fine copy, on a reduced scale, of Raphael's Madonna di San Sisto. Minnie had fallen in love with a print from that famous picture long ago, and the copy was procured for her at considerable pains and expense. The furniture of the room is of crimson and dark oak. Minnie delights in rich colors and picturesque combinations. 
in a word there is not an inch of the apartment from floor to ceiling in the arrangement of which minnie's tastes have not been consulted and in which traces of minnie's influence are not plainly to be seen by those who know that household minnie has a face which if you saw it represented in time-darkened oil colours and framed on the walls of a picture-gallery you would pronounce strikingly beautiful such faces are sometimes seen in flesh and blood and strange to say do by no means excite the same enthusiasm in ordinary beholders who for the most part like the picturesque in a picture and nowhere else and who to paraphrase what was said of voltaire's intellect admire chiefly those women who have more than other young ladies the prettiness which all young ladies have minnie's face is pale and rather sallow her skin is not transparent but fine in texture like fine vellum and it seldom changes its hue from emotion when it does it grows dark red or deadly white pleasing blushes or pallors are never seen on it she has dark thick hair worn short and brushed away from a high smooth rounded forehead in which shine a pair of bright brown eyes under finely arched eyebrows but the beauty of the face lies in the perfection of its outlines brow cheeks and chin are alike delicately moulded her mouth although the lips are too pale is almost faultless as are the small white teeth she shows when she smiles there is an indefinable air of sickness and suffering over this beautiful face and dark traces beneath the eyes and a pathetic weary look in them sometimes but when she speaks or smiles you forget all that there are people in this world whose intellects remind one of lamps too scantily supplied with oil the little feeble flame in them burns and flickers certainly but it is but a dull sort of dead light after all now minnie bodkin's spirit lamp if the phrase may be permitted illumined everything it shone upon and there were some persons who found it a great deal too dazzling to be pleasant it is not at all too bright at this moment for algernon errington who seated close beside her couch is giving her sotto voce a humorous imitation of the psalm-singing in old max's parlour and describing with great relish his mother's cool suggestion that the family prayer should be put off until she should be absent at a whist-party poor dear mother says algernon smiling she can't forget that she's an ancrum and sometimes comes out with one of her grand dame's speeches as if she were addressing my grandfather's warwickshire tenantry forty years ago at which simple candid words minnie shoots out a queer keen glance at the young fellow from under her eyelids and the methodist preacher what is he like she asks whitford is or was a little inclined to go crazed about him i don't know whether the enthusiasm is burning itself out as such fires of straw will do but a few weeks ago i heard that the little wesleyan chapel was crowded to overflowing whenever he preached and that once or twice when he addressed the people out of doors on whit meadow there was such a multitude as never was seen there before i was quite curious to see the man who could so move our sluggish whitfordians algernon had taken up a sheet of note-paper and a pen from minnie's letter-writing table whilst she was speaking look here he says here's the preacher and he holds out the paper on which he has drawn with a few rapid strokes a caricature of david powell minnie looks at it with raised eyebrows oh says she is he like that i'm disappointed this is the common conventional long-haired methodist that one sees in every comic print and in truth algernon's portrait is not a good likeness even for a caricature he had drawn a lank hook-nosed man with long black hair expressed by two blots of ink falling on either side of his face he wears his hair just like that says algy contemplating his own work with a good deal of satisfaction the card-playing has not yet begun mrs bodkin small thin with a questioning sharp little nose and a chin which narrows off too suddenly and an odd resemblance altogether to a little melancholy fox is presiding at a tea-table besides tea and coffee it is furnished with substantial cakes of many various kinds 
whitford people for the most part dine early so that they are ready for solid food again by about eight o'clock and will probably sustain nature once more with sandwiches and mulled wine before they sleep it is not a large party there is mrs errington majestic in a dyed silk and a real lace cap the latter a relic of the better days she is fond of reverting to miss chubb a stout spinster with a languishing fat face as round as a full moon and little rings of hair gummed down all over her forehead and halfway down her plump cheeks mr smith the surgeon black-eyed red-faced and smiling the rev peter warlock curate of st chad's a serious ghoul-like young man who rends great bits out of his muffin with his teeth in a way to make you shudder if you happen to be nervous or fanciful mr dockett the attorney and his wife each dressed in black each with a huge double chin and smothered voice and altogether comically like one another on the hearth-rug with his back to the fire and his coffee-cup in his hand stands dr bodkin he is short and thick he has an air of command he looks at the world in general as if it were liable to an imposition of ever so many hundred lines of latin poetry and as if he were ready to enforce the penalty at brief notice he is not a hard man at heart but nature has made him conceited and habit has made him a tyrant the boys kowtow to him at the school and his wife bends submissively to his will at home there is only one person in the world who habitually opposes and sets aside his assumption of infallibility and that person his daughter minnie he loves and fears he tramples on most other people in the firm persuasion that it is for their good he is bald large-faced with a long upper lip which he shoots out into a funnel shape when he talks he is an honest man in his calling has a fair share of routine learning and imparts it laboriously to the boys under his tuition presently the people seem to slacken in eating and drinking another cup of tea mrs errington won't you try any of that pound-cake mr warlock note well he has eaten three muffins unassisted but they do not prosper with him he has a hungry glare mrs stockett no mrs bodkin looks round and lifts her meek foxy little nose interrogatively at each member of the circle no one will eat or drink more the doctor prepares to make up the tables the card-tables are always set out in an inner drawing-room adjoining that in which our friends are taking tea dr bodkin hates to hear any noise when he is at his rubber so there are thick curtains before the door of communication between the two rooms and the door is shut and the curtains drawn whenever minnie desires to have music on whist evenings the sound of the piano penetrates to the card-players nevertheless but mrs bodkin declares that she can never hear a note when she is in the little drawing-room with the door shut and the curtains drawn and although the doctor wears a frown on his bald forehead and is more than ordinarily severe on his partner whenever the piano begins to sound during a game yet he never takes any step to have the instrument silenced the players file off in the wake of the host there is a quartet at the doctor's table at another mrs dockett mrs warlock and mr smith play dummy algernon errington hates cards and naturally doesn't play the rev peter warlock also hates cards but is wanted to make up the rubber and naturally plays mrs bodkin hovers between the two rooms and minnie and algernon are left almost tete-a-tete and so you really really think of going to london says minnie gravely to seek my fortune answers algernon with a smile turn again addington i don't know why that shouldn't be rung out on bow-bells you see my name has the same number of syllables as whittington i declare that is a good omen whittington made himself useful to the cook and took care of his kitten i wonder what you'll do algy to deserve fortune do you think fortune favours the deserving they paint her as a woman cries master algernon with a saucy grimace algy i like you we are old chums have you considered this step have you any reasonable prospect of making your way if you refuse the bristol man's proposition minnie seldom speaks so earnestly as she is speaking now 
still seldomer volunteers any inquiry into other people's affairs algernon is sensible of the distinction and flattered by it he forthwith proceeds to lay his hopes and plans before her that is to say he talks a great deal with astonishing candour and fluency and says wonderfully little his mother is so anxious these seelys are her people it would vex the dear lady so terribly if he were to prefer the bristol side of the house though perhaps that would be selfishly speaking the right policy ah i see exclaims minnie sinking back among her cushions when he has done speaking by and by one or two more guests drop in young pawkins of pudcombe hall some six miles from whitford lieutenant-colonel whistler on half-pay with his two nieces rose and violet mcdougall and with them alethea dockett who is still a day-boarder at the girls school in whitford and has been spending the afternoon with the misses mcdougall the latter young ladies never play whist little ally dockett sometimes takes a hand if need be and acquits herself not discreditably but sixteen rushes in where two and thirty fears to tread rose and violet are on the doubtful borderland of life and keep up a brief skirmishing warfare with their enemy time they would not give that wily old traitor the triumph of putting themselves at a whist table for anything short of a bona fide offer of marriage with a good settlement all these guests minnie receives very graciously with a sort of royal condescension she is quite unconscious that the misses mcdougall of whose intelligence she has truth to say a disdainful estimate are alive to the fact that she thinks them fools and that they take a good deal of credit to themselves for bearing with her airs poor thing but then she is so afflicted oh minnie what's that do let me see is it one of your caricatures you wicked thing cries rose darting on the portrait of david powell it is better drawn than minnie can do says violet with an air of having evidence wrung from her on oath it may be that and yet not very good answers minnie carelessly mr addington has been trying to give me an idea of some one i've never seen and probably never shall see it's the methodist preacher by jove says young pawkins with his glass in his eye i heard him and saw him last summer on whit meadow colonel whistler after holding the paper out at the utmost stretch of his arm solemnly puts on a pair of gold spectacles and examines it monstrous good he pronounces very well errington that's just the cut of that kind of fellow have you seen him colonel asked minnie no no i can't say i have seen him don't like these irregular practitioners miss minnie but i know the sort of fellow that's just the cut of em i wish i could draw miss bodkin says a voice behind minnie at the head of the sofa i would show you a better likeness of the man than that minnie puts her thin white hand over her shoulder to the newcomer whom she cannot see mr diamond she exclaims very softly how can you tell i know your voice End of chapter 4